Good morning, everyone. So we are continuing this morning in our sermon series called The Lifestyle of Jesus. So not the life of Jesus, which we often look at, but the lifestyle of Jesus, following a different way, looking at not necessarily what Jesus was teaching or saying, although that's naturally very important, but rather at how he lived, how he lived his life, the way in which he lived. Because if we want to follow him, which is what he's, of course, asked us to do, and is the constant imperative of the Christian, if we want to follow him, we don't just do what he says. We live as he lived. We walk in his footsteps. We seek to imitate him in every way that we possibly can. And as I've mentioned before in previous weeks, there, there is this other way of our North American society, of our, of our culture that wants to sweep us along with it. It's like this river that just wants to pull us into it and sweep us along with it unless we live in a different way. And there is, in fact, this other way that when we examine it closely, looks very different than the way of our culture and actually pushes against it. And especially in this season, you know, where it's now been over a year since we've all been able to gather together over a year of living in a, in a sort of pandemic world where we don't always know what's happening. The political climate has been charged. Everyone's got a different opinion on, on everything. And in the midst of it all, we can lose the main thing. In the midst of all this that's going on, we can miss and lose the one thing that's actually necessary, that sources us with wisdom for all this other stuff. Jesus said, follow me. That is the heartbeat, the meeting place, the nucleus of living the Christian faith in any season. He is not just the way in theory. Jesus is the way to truly live. And if we follow him, if we want to follow him, we need to know that there are going to be wilderness experiences because that's what Jesus himself needed to endure. So this morning, I'm, I'm sure you can guess now where we're turning to. We are turning to Luke chapter four. We're going to be reading verses one through 13. So if you've got your Bibles beside you, you can turn to the book of Luke chapter four, verses one through 13. Luke wrote this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so what's going on in this passage? This is the question we're asking every week. What's going on in this passage? And what do we see Jesus doing? 
verse 1 and 2, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, okay? So he's he's just received baptism, and he's been identified as the one that we all now need to be paying attention to, the one who has God's Spirit on him, right? So Luke is telling us now from the very beginning here that we're not looking at Israel anymore to point us to God. God Israel is no longer in the place of being God's representative on earth. We are looking now at Jesus. This is a pivotal moment in Luke. Everything is now focused on Jesus, and what's the first thing that he does after his, his baptismal ordination service? After being affirmed as God's son, the, the heavens, right, are rent open. God's spirit has reconnected with earth. His ministry is about to begin. And now that he has the spirit, now that he has God's spirit on him, where does this spirit lead him to? The wilderness. There's a whole lot better of places I could have imagined Jesus wanting to go. Why is his first task, the, the, the first mission of this, his great mission, the first imperative of his ministry life, why is it to enter the wilderness? Well, where else have we seen the number 40 associated with wilderness? Yeah, Israel's story. 40 years in the desert after leaving Egypt, after having been, been baptized, in a sense, by going through the Red Sea, passing through the Red Sea. Yes, there is a sort of fulfillment here happening, a fulfillment of Israel's narrative. Jesus is the new Israel, and so in a way, he's having to re-walk out their narrative. He's having to re-walk out that narrative and to, in order to fulfill it. Yes, that's, that's definitely going on here, but it's more than that. Because he doesn't just go into the desert to fulfill a narrative. Let's read this again. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Okay, so, so Jesus also engages in the spiritual discipline of fasting. Hugely important. He's, he's starving himself of one thing in order to be nourished by, other, by, by something else. This is what the church fathers and mothers did in the, in the early centuries and all throughout church tradition. Hugely important. As Luke tells us, Jesus was hungry, which is a bit of a no-brainer. But I mean, imagine, just, just imagine, this is why it was such a discipline for the early church, right? And, and for, for any Christian that has ever engaged in this, in this discipline, imagine going one day without eating. From the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, you haven't eaten a thing. How grumpy are you? Probably not a whole lot of fun to be around, right? Now imagine going 40 days, almost six weeks, without food. How weak would you feel? It's in that place of weakness, of, of fragility, of aching hunger, and, and likely a lot of pain, that Jesus is in the desert, in the wilderness. Why? Why would he let himself do that? What, what is Jesus doing? doing here. 
Yes, he's he's allowing himself to be led by the Spirit. Yes, he's fulfilling Israel's narrative. Yes, he's fasting so that all of his attention, all of his appetite is geared in one place. But all of these things, all of this is for the purpose of one thing, resisting the devil's temptations fighting against a different way that is trying to overpower him and sweep him along with it. That's what Jesus is doing. He's showing us the means by which we can resist the devil's ways and wholeheartedly follow his way. As James 4 puts it, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Right? And following Jesus' example This is how we can resist. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at each of these three temptations, at at the specific kind of temptation that Jesus is faced with, because each of his temptations point to a pandemic struggle that all humans face, not just Jesus. So we're looking at, again, not the fact that Jesus was tempted, but how he approached temptation, how he was able to respond to it when it came at him. Okay, so, so Jesus is, just context here, Jesus is in a wilderness area, as we've emphasized, likely close, close by to the Jordan. It's, it's barren, it's rocky, it's dusty. And for 40 days, he's encountering not the heavenly voice of his father that he just heard at his baptism, but a very different voice. For 40 days, he's battling the constant pressure and temptation of choosing a different way. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Notice the wording there, right? If you are the son of God. What's the first thing that the devil tries to do with Jesus? He tries to plant the seed of doubt in his mind. Are you really the son of God? Are, Are you really who you think you are? Right? Because then having planted the seed of doubt in Jesus' mind, the next thing he tried to do, tries to do is to address Jesus' most immediate need. Right, So many temptations first start out with the seed of doubt. The devil knows, right? He knows how to do this with us. And so he says to Jesus, Jesus, you're hungry, man. <laughs> if you're able, if you really are the son of God, use the power that's been given to you and turn some of these stones to bread. If you are the son of God, take care of yourself. It's your body. Allow yourself to feel good, Jesus. You're the Messiah. Why would God want his his beloved son to be famished with hunger? Wouldn't wouldn't your father want you to feel good, Jesus? Wouldn't, Wouldn't he want you to be happy? Stop hurting yourself, he says. You, you, you're doing it all wrong, Jesus. You're going about this the wrong way. God, God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be satisfied, to be comfortable, to feel good. It's often the first way that the deceiver gets a hold of us. You know, when we're, when we're feeling weak too, when we're off focus, when we're tired, discouraged, lonely, when we're, when we're frustrated with life, we're, we're weary of being disciplined and, and always feeling like we have to do the right thing, right? When we crave comfort, man, I just want to feel comfortable for once. Happiness, satisfaction. I would be so much happier if, oh, my life would be so much better if. I will, I will be so much better off when. 
Why is this a lie? Well, because if we know anything about the Christian faith, if we know anything about Jesus' teachings, we know that that his way is definitely not the way for being quote-unquote happy or comfortable. That's actually a, a cheap sell and frankly a watering down of the gospel. C.S. Lewis once said this, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Don't get me wrong. Is is there joy and gladness and contentment and freedom and flourishing in following Jesus? Yes. Yes, but only in his way. The way that the deceiver wants to pull him is in a very different way. It's only in the way of Jesus that we can truly receive life. And his way says that whoever wants to follow him will lose their life. If you want to go the way I'm going, he says, you actually have to say no to yourself. This isn't about you. This isn't about your ideas of the good life. Why? Because the goal is not all of that stuff. The goal is life with him, not happiness and comfort. This is the way to joy and gladness and contentment and freedom, not that other stuff. But the deceiver will try every which way, every way he can, to make us doubt that. And Jesus' goal here in the wilderness is to fight the lie with truth. So he says in verse 4, Man shall not live on bread alone. That will not satisfy me. Bread, wealth, comfort, happiness, stuff. It will not satisfy me. And then the rest of that phrase actually comes out of Deuteronomy 8 is this. But on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus uses the words of God to fight the lies of the devil. He knows that his mission is to be fueled not by worldly nourishment, but by God, by knowing him. He knows that the true source of life is his father, the true joy. And he's, and he's disciplined himself, right? He's disciplined himself to focus on that. That's why he's, he's spent so much of his time steeped in scripture, in communion with his father. He knows that with his father, there is, there is life, there is joy, and he's disciplined himself to focus on that because in that place, in that posture, the devil cannot have a foothold. In that place of knowing the father, the devil cannot have a foothold on him. As Paul says to to Timothy in in the second book of Timothy, in chapter three, in the last days, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And the question for the church ever since is do our things, our comforts, these things that uh, we use to bring us happiness and satisfaction, do they bring us closer to the Father? Or do they replace Him? Whose way are we really following? Second temptation. Jesus is led up to a high place, shown all the kingdoms of the world. In his mind, right, he's, he's seeing this all in his mind. He's able to see it all. And the devil says to him in verse 6, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Oh, 
Jesus, wouldn't that be so much easier? Wouldn't that just be so much simpler, more, more efficient? I, I mean, if this is where God's going to take you, if this is where you're going to end up anyways, why not just claim it now? You could be in a position to really do things, to, to have influence, to, to swap out bad leaders for good leaders, and, and not just have you know a little group of motley followers, but the whole world. Everyone would look at you in awe. You wouldn't have to fight for it anymore. You wouldn't have to go through all this suffering stuff. It, Jesus, it would just be so much easier. Follow my example, Jesus. Stop worrying about people and, and just put yourself in charge. Put yourself in the place of influence, of power. Don't wait for somebody else to do it for you. This, this is so much simpler. How many of us wish that we didn't have just a, a little bit more simplicity in life? Maybe a bit more control. A bit more say in, in how things run or, or how things operate. How other people act or behave. How many of us wish life, ministry, parenting, work, all of our efforts was just a little bit easier? I mean, isn't that what all the advertisements tell us to wish for? Take control of your life. Shoot, I've seen this on Christian advertisements before. Take control of your finances. Take control of your education, of your job, of your work, of your life, of your body. Live the lifestyle that you want to live. Why? Because then life is so much easier. You feel powerful. You feel in control. You feel like you have ownership over your existence and over your stuff. That's what draws people in, right? That's what wows them. Somebody who has their life all together, who seems to have things under control. That's what, that's what makes them see that you're the real deal. You thrive in independence, says the enemy. So take it. It's so much easier, so much more efficient, so much simpler. Stop wasting your time and just do it now. Sounds tempting, doesn't it? Frightening, but tempting. A friend of mine once said this, you know what's really close to the truth? A really good lie. The devil is always trying to feed us with really good lies. He knows how to take something that is so destructive and make it sound so good. Almost so good that you don't even realize anymore that it could be bad for you because it's just so convincing. It sounds so convincing. I was chatting with a friend in Vancouver uh, whose husband recently took a job, a teaching position at a small private university in Illinois, uh, Lincoln, Illinois. It's a big switch for them to go from Vancouver, big, big town Vancouver to small town uh, Lincoln. And it was one of those situations where when he got offered the job and was told the salary, they really had to sort of swallow it because it, it was a bit of a minuscule payment com compared to the job that he was currently doing, which in the job he's currently doing is he's working for a woman in the UK uh, doing book reviews. And this woman essentially offered to pay him anything he wants, right? She's married to this guy who manages hedge funds and makes millions and, and essentially literally said, you know, name your salary and please just stay with me. Name your salary and, and, and I'll give you whatever you want. And for them, you know, th th this was really tempting, right? They've got two young kids, you know, my friends thinking about Christmas in Italy and, and, and all the things they could do with that money. But interestingly, both of them felt... Because they had felt, they felt really called, right, to to take this position in Lincoln. 
both of them separately, independently, had this narrative come to mind. This narrative of the devil taking Jesus up to this high mountaintop, showing him all the kingdoms, all the power, all the wealth. You could have all this, Jesus. And they just knew that 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 wasn't the way for them to follow. Anybody would have looked at them and looked at the numbers and been like, what are you doing? (laughs) This is the obvious choice. But that's not what mattered most to them. Because, again, what did Jesus do? He speaks scripture against the devil's voice. He uses truth to fight the lie. And he says from Deuteronomy 6, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Huh. There's the heart, right, of the devil's temptation. That's what's actually at the heart of his temptation here. Who are you going to worship? It's why Jesus says later on in the Gospels, you cannot serve both God and money. You actually cannot do it. Are you going to seek after power and seize control for yourself and try to run things your way? Or will you offer up your life and entrust yourself into the hands of a God who knows better? Will you entrust your life and give up control to somebody who you know sees the whole picture. Whose way are you going to follow? Third, last temptation. Jesus is led up to the highest point of the temple, verse 9 to 11. If you are the Son of God, right? There's that line again. If you are the Son of God, Jesus, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Ah, do you see that? You see that? Okay. Do you see what the devil's doing? He's caught on, right? He's caught on to Jesus' method. He's caught on to Jesus' tactics. So what does he do? He now uses scripture to persuade Jesus. Throw yourself down, Jesus. <laughs> Don't worry about it. The, the angels are going to catch you. God's own word says that, Jesus. Psalm 91, it's a, it's a beautiful passage. The angels will lift you up. You won't even strike your foot against a stone. Your father said that, Jesus. Don't you trust him? Be- because if you do trust him, you know, you, you might want to prove it or give us a sign because if you are his son, he'll carry you. But you should probably test that out to be sure because, you know, your whole ministry will flop if you're not 100% sure on this one, right? You know, test it out and, and then you'll know, Jesus. Then you'll know. How many of us wish that we, uh, we didn't have just a bit more certainty in life? Affirmation that, that everything's going to be okay. To have assurance, to know for sure that, that I don't actually need to worry about anything, you know, that I'll be taken care of, that, that my life will be okay, my life, my, my reputation will be okay, my family will be okay, my name will be okay, my job will be okay. Or to know for sure if and when bad things will happen. Because, you know, then I can be prepared. Like, don't pull a fast one on me, God. I'd rather you love me by telling me ahead of time, right? <laughs> because, I mean, is it is it really loving me to keep me questioning like this and worrying about tomorrow? Like, that's not fun. It's the temptation that's that's at the heart of every human person, right? The temptation that... that even Adam actually fell into at the very beginning that set off the whole chain reaction of humans falling away from God. Did God really say that? Are, 
are, are you are you sure that that's what God thinks about you? Are, are you sure that that's what God really said? That that's what he's really like? It's the temptation for certainty fed by the seed of doubt. Will God really take care of me? It's why we seek after comfort and control, because what we actually want is certainty. We want to know for sure. We want to be certain that that our lives will be okay, that my family will be okay, that everything's going to go the way that I think it should, and I don't actually have to worry about tomorrow, really, because I know for sure what tomorrow looks like. I don't have to worry about next week because I know what next week looks like. I don't have to worry about next year because I know what the years look like, right? We love planning ahead because we like to feel like we have some kind of certainty. And yet again, how does Jesus respond? Do not put the Lord your God to the test. The rest of that verse, again, comes from Deuteronomy 6, is this, as you did at Massa. Okay, well, what happened at Massa? Exodus 17, the Israelites are in the wilderness, right? They've witnessed God's power. They have seen God do miraculous things, but they test it. They complain about their thirst. They're grumbling with Moses. They're quarreling with him. They wish they were back in Egypt. They're, they assume that God will not take care of them. Psalm 95 recalls this, do not harden your hearts, right? This is God speaking through the psalmist. Do not harden your hearts as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me though they had seen what I did. You you can hear God's heart in that, right? You saw what I did. Don't test me. They had seen what God had done. They had seen signs, obvious signs of his character, yet they did not know him. They had witnessed his character, and yet they still did not know him. Alternatively here, Jesus, who's, who's steeped in the scriptures, right? He's steeped and focused entirely on his relationship and communion with his father, as we've seen in previous weeks, right? There's a, there's a good reason why we did those two first, With that foundation, Jesus does not need to test his father. He can resist the temptation to doubt because he knows who his father is. He does not need to test him because he knows who his father is. And he knows that we too, struggle and will struggle with the same pressures. He knows that. It's why he evidently shared this narrative with his disciples, right? Like no one else was with Jesus in the wilderness, okay? There weren't, there weren't like a bunch of little, you know, followers hiding behind rocks, peeking over and, and watching this scene. He was on his own. And so evidently he felt like this narrative was important to share with his disciples because in this story of wilderness temptations, he's showing how he's identified with us. He gets it. He's gone through it himself. He's been tempted in every way, just as we have. And he wants to show us that there's a different way. There's a way to respond, a way that equips us to resist the temptations of sexual, or sexual, sorry, of selfish ambition, and instead choose the path of humility and self-denial, which is actually the path to life and flourishing. Because everything we're fed with, right? Everything the devil tries to feed us with is about ourselves, right? What do you want? 
what will satisfy you, what will make you look good, what will make you feel fulfilled and happy and in control and certain about everything. But notice how Jesus is focused in in every temptation, not on himself, but on his Father. Everything, he says, is focused on his Father. This is what God is like. This is what he has said. This is how I know that you, devil, are feeding me a lie. And so to follow, to follow then for us in Jesus' victory over temptations means to learn the difference. To learn the difference and to distinguish between the attractive lies and the voice of God. Between the half-truths and the real truths. To use, to use the scriptures, to use the sword of truth, as, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, to refute those lies and to remember who God is who he actually is, who his character is, and who we are. It's why Jesus was in the temple at an early age studying the scriptures. It's why when he's baptized, what we see him doing is he's praying. It's because Jesus was so steeped in scripture and because Jesus had spent so much time communing with his father that he was able to face the devil's temptation, to face the devil's tempting, and to hear certain lies and to be able to say, no, that's not true. I know what truth is. I know who my father is and I know that you're feeding me a lie. That's what he wants for us. To be able to distinguish between the voice of lies and the voice of truth. To follow him means to know the difference. To grow in knowing the difference. To grow in the knowledge and discernment of hearing God's voice above every other sound every other noise, every other voice. Because that's the voice which will tell us who we really are. Jesus knew who he was. He trusted in who God said he was because the most important thing for him was to know the Father. He knew when he was being tempted, as Nowen puts it, to define himself by something else, by what he possessed, by what he owned, by what people thought about him. All of that, he trusted that God was able to tell him that he was who God said he was. And the greatest lie, we'll finish here, the greatest lie that continues to eat away at every human person, even in the church, if not especially in the church, is that we are not who God says we are. That we are not worthy, that we have to prove something, that we have a reason to doubt or to feel unlovable. It's the same question to us. Are you really a son of God? Are you you really a, a daughter of God? The greatest lie is that we are not, and that we have to prove somehow that we are worthy of being loved. And Jesus wants to say to us, no, no, you are loved with an insatiable love, a a jealous love, a love that does not need to be tested. A love that cannot be matched with any other comfort or or found anywhere else. A love that has claimed you and will never cease to care for you. Do you not realize how much I have sacrificed for you? You've seen what I have done. 
You don't need to test it. It's a love. It's, it's a divine love, that divine communion of love that we've spoken about in previous weeks. It's in that love where the temptations of comfort, control, and certainty which plague us day in and day out are finally overcome. Only in this love can we actually follow Jesus in the way that he asks us to. Trust this love. Trust that you are claimed by the Father. Trust that his sacrifice has been enough for you, that it is sufficient, that the grace that you have received is enough to make you a son or a daughter of God. Trust this. Resist the devil's temptations and do not doubt. May the truths of God's word feed you as you are led by his Holy Spirit even into places of wilderness. And may you always pray, may we always pray, as the old hymn puts it, I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.